Hey folks, welcome to the fourth installment in our Book of Hope Conservation Case Studies series. So to fill in the newcomers, a recent review of Australian conservation projects coordinated by the Threatened Species Recovery Hub of the National Environmental Science Program resulted in an array of wildlife scientists, land managers and so on getting together to produce the book Recovering Australian Threatened Species, A Book of Hope, now available from CSIRO Publishing. In this fourth and final series of case studies, we'll be exploring some of the incredible plant conservation successes from the Book of Hope along with chapter authors. Uh, for more Book of hope awesomeness you can check out our mammal case studies in episode 26 our bird case studies in episode 28 and our freshwater case studies in episode 30 or our interview with the book's lead editor professor stephen garnett from charles darwin uni in episode 22 you can also check out the book now from csr publishing and all good book retailers our serving suggestion for this show is of course carrot cake and i figure something with a lot of plant aromatics so why not a negroni that's equal parts gin sweet vermouth and campari with a wedge of orange stirred over ice um so here we go Oh yeah. Cheers everyone. Enjoy. Alright, hi everybody. Another Wildlife Cake and Cocktails case study for the Threatened Species Recovery Hub Book of Hope coming at you this afternoon. We're talking to Vanessa Craigie from the Department of Environment, Land, Water and Planning in Victoria. Vanessa completed her Bachelor of Science, a dual major in Zoology and Botany with honours in Marine Ecology at Monash Uni in 1982. However, she's since focused much more on plants. In fact, she's uh, spent many years involved in uh, con uh, conserving the native grassland communities uh, down in Victoria. We're going to be talking spiny rice flowers. Uh, I believe that's Pamela spinescence. Uh, so, uh, yeah, thank you very much, Vanessa, for uh, talking to us today about uh, grasslands and uh, rice flowers. This is uh, going to be a great show. Thank you. Delighted to be here. Excellent, excellent. And we're talking, uh, you're obviously somewhere in the cold lands of Victoria at the moment. Well, regrettably, I'm sitting in an office today. Um, but uh, otherwise, yes, if I was, uh, if I was, if it was springtime, I'd be delighted to be out in the field. But in autumn, it's not a great time to be chasing plants. Wonderful. Well, I mean, obviously, the autumns down there can get a bit chilly. But what are the uh, what are the uh, native grassland communities uh, like in uh, in the springtime there? I imagine they're they're quite beautiful. They're absolutely fantastic. There, there's not that many areas of native grassland that are in what might be called pristine or even very good condition. But when you do find ones that, that are in very good condition, they are an absolute carpet of the most spectacular wildflowers. And you can only imagine what it must have been like to have seen the, um, the Western Volcanic Plains or the Gippsland Plains um, back in pre-European days when they were just covered in this colourful carpet. Right, right. Look, I mean, even even up here and uh, and out in sort of the drier areas, it's it's often a lot more common to experience things like invasive buffalo grass or cooch grass and things like this growing in massive, massive, big tufts of grass that, that you know they you'd almost think that they're native. But um, yeah, it turns out that uh, native uh, grassland communities are, are pretty rare um, all the way across Australia. Is that correct? That's absolutely true. Um, in Victoria and New South Wales, actually, the Riverina grasslands are actually in better nick than they are in those south of the Great Dividing Range, simply because the rainfall is higher, south of the divide, and you get a lot more weed invasion. So it's very hard once a southern grassland community has become degraded to actually restore it. It takes an enormous amount of work. It's an easier job in uh, north of the divide, simply because Yes, you've got a great great number of weeds, but the job is just that little bit easier. 
Right, right. Okay, well, look, let's move on to our uh, main subject for the case study, the spiny rice flour. Did I get that name right, by the way? Pamela Spinescence? Pamela Spinescence Spinescence. Um, there's the, the single species, Spinescence, and there's two subspecies, Spinescence Spinescence, which is spiny rice flour, and Spinescence pubiflora, which is Wimmera rice flour, that was uh, thought to be extinct and was only rediscovered uh, 15, 20 years ago. Right, and I understand that um, they're both listed as threatened under the Victoria's Flora and Fauna Guarantee Act and critically endangered under the EPBC Act of 1999, as are most of their uh, grassy ecosystems that they inhabit. Pretty much, yes. Right. Now, um, so they're a small, small grassy shrub, about 50 centimetres in height, um, small green leaves growing from spine-tipped woody stems and uh, with small pale yellow flowers through April to August, and mostly throughout the, those native grasslands and uh, in the lowland plains of, of Victoria. Is that right? Yeah, you don't tend to find it um, to the east of the state. Um, you get it on the western plains and in the Riverina area. You don't tend to find it in the Gippsland area because it's a little more of a, an arid tolerant species. But the fun thing we find about that is it's this tiny, well, really subdued plant. We call it a very unassuming plant. But they put down, even though it's only about 50 centimetres high, they put down a, a taproot that can be anything up to a metre long. And from, and from carbon dating... We believe that they can be anything from, well, we certainly have carbon dating records of 50 years old. They could be 100 years old and plus, simply because they're incredibly resistant. They whack down this taproot and then once they've got there, they just hang in and they can be beaten up by all sorts of environmental hazards. But they're really pretty tough things once they get that taproot down. But once you've lost them, that's the problem. Getting them back down again, because it takes a long time for for a teensy little plant to put in a one metre taproot to get it get it secure. Wow! So once that um, metre long taproot is down, they could survive quite happily through all kinds of droughts and dry periods and stuff. Uh, was that was that maybe up to a hundred years? Yeah. Well, we don't even know. It could be longer. Wow, that's fascinating. So, um, what exactly was uh, the problem for for this particular plant? I understand that a lot of their grassland habitat is is uh, cleared and the remaining populations are small and those habitats that are left are fragmented. So they're not continuous pieces, they're small, fragmented, isolated pockets. Absolutely the case. Um, when we talk about how much the grassland is left, that's very much a how long and how good is a piece of string. Because you could say of the really high quality grasslands left, there may be 0.1% um, on the Western Plains if we're lucky. Then there are larger areas that are degraded grasslands, what we might call in some cases native pastures, where they're still grazed, or, sorry, beg your pardon, where they're grazed land, um, but they haven't been ploughed, they haven't been fertilised, and they haven't had all the rocks dug up. And uh, they can still be grazed, and they can be productive farming systems, and they still retain some of the grassland species, but they're really not the grassland per se. So the grasslands, the really good quality native grasslands are very, very rare and we value them, value them dearly wherever we find them. So the majority of uh, the ones that are there are a little bit degraded already? Yeah, well what uh, tends to happen is that because of, um, of human management, what used to be a sort of a mosaic of grassland and grassy woodland, I'll use the volcanic, the Western Volcanic Plains as a good example, they used to be quite widespread across there in a range of treed or untreed conditions. 
But because of human management, they either got um, turned into grazing paddocks and uh, subject to a, to a lot of grazing in some places completely removed by ploughing and what have you, or they wound up purely by, by accident on roadsides and rail reserves simply because historically those bits of land were always burnt for fuel management. So we wound up getting two separate lots, the, these little linear strips that have been historically burnt and the bits on private land that have been historically grazed. And now they're actually quite different. So you only have the, um, the grazing tolerant species in the paddocks and you only have the burning tolerant species on the roadsides, but you don't necessarily have the same fleet of species in any one spot. Wow, that's fascinating. So the uh, fire and the removal of biomass, I'm guessing that's uh, uh, weeds and other grasses that are competing for the uh, native grassland community spatially? Is that the uh, situation? Yep, correct. Um, a lot of a lot of weeds, of course, but even in very good quality grasslands, kangaroo grass, which you could call the, if you like, the the dominant forest species, the the overstory, um, if you're talking about a grassland, that can be very dominant, and you really need to be whacking in a fire or some sort of what we call biomass control every few years just to keep the competition down and to allow all the flowering herds that give you the, the real beauty of the grasslands to give them, them a chance to get their heads up and uh, flower and drop seeds. Right, okay. Um, and on top of that, obviously, risks from urban and agricultural development, land clearing, quite a few risks there for these grassland communities. Oh, yes, yes, absolutely, particularly around Melbourne. Um, you know, in the 1970s, 1980s, I believe, uh, the whole area that's now the Taylor's Lakes um, suburb was covered with you know, hundreds of square kilometres of, um, of native grassland, but we didn't we didn't really pay it any attention. It was only in the uh, 1980s, I suppose, early 1990s, that native grassland started to become re- recognised as an ecological community that was worth conserving. Up until then, it was just regarded as you know it's a paddock. Right, right. And uh, obviously, with a lot of these uh, Australian ecosystems, which, uh, you know, Europeans were not used to, you know, it, it is difficult with that mentality to see the biodiversity value in some of these uh, more, I guess, sparse ecosystems. Yeah, because when the first European settlers came onto the Western Plains, there's historical um, articles that talk about the kangaroo grass being as high as a horse's belly and the, uh, the soils were very soft and very fertile. But then all these hard-hooved animals came in, so the sheep, the cattle, the horses, and these systems evolved in an environment where there were soft-footed animals, you know, bandicoots and kangaroos and wallabies and what have you, that weren't, that weren't sort of factory grazers. So as soon as you got in all these, these this domestic stock, they went over the, the plains like a, you know, like a bulldozer. They caused a lot of soil compaction. Um, they, uh, they selectively grazed a lot of species that have now become extremely rare. And um, a lot of pastures, pasture species were brought in, exotic plants that replaced the native species. And the fire regime that had been previously maintained by the indigenous people was completely turned on its head. So you lost a lot of things and you also gained a lot of things you didn't particularly want. Right. So with the loss of that um, uh, regular uh, indigenous fire stick farming and that biomass removal, uh, the threats from development, land clearing, fragmentation, 
that's that's you know obviously a lot for these things to contend to. What kind of actions um, are being uh, taken to protect uh, spiny rice flowers? I, I, obviously, I understand there's a lot of research on their biology and ecology, and um, I imagine some managed burning. Yep. Well, spiny rice flower is a bit of a flag waver for native grassland communities because it occurs on the Western Plains and also in the Riverina. And because there's a lot of people who are really involved in it, um, because we've just acquired a bit of a bit of a, an affection for this plant, there's a lot of work being done and grasslands and other grassland species um, really threatened um, fairly well-known species like button wrinklewort or large fruit ground cell or um, uh, quite a suite of orchids. They're benefiting as well because we're focusing on spiny rice flower as this bit of a flagship. So yeah, the main, the main things we really want to do is to try to keep weeds to a minimum, try to um, restrict soil disturbance as much as possible and to maintain a uh, well as natural a program of, of um, biomass removal or burning as we possibly can. So the main thing is that really you don't need a lot to manage a decent quality grassland. If you find a spot that isn't too weedy and hasn't been much disturbed, basically you drop a match in it every few years and it will pretty much look after itself. It's once you start bringing in vehicles and digging and introduce weeds, then you have a headache that's quite hard to solve. So it's not a hard thing. To, it's not a hard thing to manage. Yeah. Okay. So once you've got the good fire regime and a lot of those uh, in, invasive plants and animals under control, is is there still a lot of uh, uh, you know augmenting or managing of the uh, the populations to improve their recruitment rates, or uh, that's not really too necessary once you've got the ecosystem functioning a little bit better? Well, I'm afraid there is a problem with the recruitment rates, simply because as a very long lived species it doesn't have that many recruitment events. It's not an annual species that relies on lots and lots of seed coming up. So like a number of other grassland species, you need a, a fairly neat set of circumstances to get successful recruitment. You need a decent seed set, so you know, not too dry summer, but the, and you need relatively open ground, so something that's not choked out with kangaroo grass. But you do, do need some decent rain after a recruitment event because a few years ago there was um, there was a wildfire that went through a particular paddock um, not far from Werribee and we got thousands, absolutely thousands of seedlings pop up but because of the dryness afterwards we got oh, maybe you know, half a dozen that, that um, survived that, that dry period. So come, come a changing climate where we're going to get these hotter summers and drier autumns the prognosis isn't looking particularly good. So that's when we go into something called an extinction debt, where something seems to be reasonably abundant because you're seeing adults all over the landscape, but you're not getting the new ones coming up. So once some of your older ones start to, to go from just plain old age, where's the replacement? Right. So the next generation isn't being produced to take over once those plants die of old age for uh, basically climate climate reasons with the, the seedlings. Is that correct? Yeah, it's, um, it's a climatic accidents plus habitat loss plus a change in climate. All of these things are contributing to an ongoing loss of not just spiny rouse flower but a lot of other long-lived grassland species. 
However, um, Dr. Deborah Reynolds, who did her PhD in, um, in on spiny rice flour and is the the real mover and driver behind the um, the recovery team, is doing a great deal of work setting up seed orchards and um, and working with a number of other groups to set up introduced populations where we um, plant out seedlings and give them watering over summer and try and promote as much recruitment as possible to try to re, um, reinforce existing populations or set up new ones. And in some cases, where, particularly around Melbourne where there's a lot of development proposals, the spiny rice flower recovery team puts a lot of effort into reviewing transportation plans that developers might put up because they are required to actually, in some cases, dig up and move these plants or collect seed or grow them on, whatever the case may be. But mind you, translocating um, something with a metre-long trans- uh, taproot is something of an ask. So we now have a program where we use a particular tree spade that digs out this huge hunk of dirt, um, which is sort of a half a metre by a half a metre and about a half a metre deep, and you pull out this huge um, huge pyramid-shaped plug out of the ground and uh, move the plants that way. Wow, so you're digging up the soil and the surrounding taproot, uh, sorry, the taproot underneath it and the surrounding roots and and everything when, you, when you're when you moving these plants from one place to another. Absolutely, because you can't just dig it up because how far down do you have to go? So, yes, you're looking at a pretty hefty bit of machinery to get these things to successfully move and to set, successfully um, settle in somewhere else. So we've got the... Uh, up down pretty pretty well by now, but it's not it's not an easy business and it's not a cheap business. But this, it's the the usual rule that it's always far easier to um, conserve a particular ecosystem than to try to re- recreate it. Well, that's fantastic, and and obviously you know um, you know with such an iconic species as well, um, and something that is so representative of the grasslands. Anything you're doing to protect that species is going to have some flow on effect for for the ecosystem and some of the other species there as well. Absolutely. Um, so what, what do you think are some of the reasons for, uh, you know, the, uh, the success you guys are having in moving and, uh, you know, managing these populations? Well, there's, there's a, two, two key elements. There's the fact that there are so many different agencies that are involved in, um, in the conservation of this species because it's extremely widely distributed. It's regarded as critically endangered simply because it's just in a fraction of the numbers and the areas that it used to be. But once upon a time, it must have been across, you know, two-thirds of Victoria. So we find little pockets of it here and there all over the place. So there's so many different organisations or individuals who actually wind up having plants on their properties or within their spheres of management. So there's a lot of interest. Um, On the recovery team, we have a number of regular uh, participants, but there's something like 35, I can't even remember how many, local governments that are all um, that all participate in one way or the other simply because they have um, spiny rice flour within their on their land. Um, so there's a huge amount of interest, and there's so much cooperation. So the recovery team consists of well, state government of course, but uh, local government, conservation organisations, private consultancies, individuals, you name it. It's a it's a huge, um, hugely enthusiastic group, and everyone works together in the greatest sense of cooperation. That's one thing. So it's all the, all the friends who are involved. But one of the big things that's always the kicker with species recovery programs is money. One of the main reasons why this species has worked out fairly well is because 
back a few years, there was a development program, um, a bit of property land flaring around Melbourne, and as part of an agreement with the federal government and the state government, but particular local government and the uh, the developer, a trust fund was set up. And the, the trust fund was set up with Trust for Nature, and we now have this ongoing pool of money in an interest-bearing account that allows us to draw down on um, on a source of funding to maintain both uh, Dr. Deborah Reynolds, the primarily conservation officer, one day a week, but also to do a lot of works and fund a lot of a lot of projects. Well, shared shared funding that is. So we're in this extraordinarily um, unusual and delightful situation of actually having some funding to to do what we want to do without too many too many strings. And that's not something a lot of recovery teams can say. No, and obviously that's so important for such a long-lived species. You know, um, to you know, uh, short-term funding is not going to cut it. It never will. No, that's that's a problem because short-term pro- funding programs, historically, whether in government or outside of government, have always been um, okay. Here's three years of funding. This will fix your problems. Then you can then you can say thank you very much and go away. That's not the case with these sorts of things. You can never really take your foot off the pedal um, in terms of conservation efforts because things are changing all the time, pressures alter, people change, um, government priorities, um, organisational priorities change. You can't just say that three years of funding solve your problem and that's it. Absolutely, absolutely. Vanessa, I'm sorry, but I think we're going to have to wrap up this case study right about here. Just before we go, uh, how's the future looking for this species in your opinion? Oh, now that's an interesting one. Um, uh, better than some, but the the pressures that have caused its decline are still are still acting. Um, I would not be regarding it as in any way secure. It's still critically endangered. I can't see it not being critically endangered into the future. Um, but if we if we work really hard, we might get it back into an endangered category. But for this and other grassland species, the prognosis is still pretty pretty grim we're, we're doing our best which we're fighting a whole battle right obviously challenges with uh, recruitment and climate and uh, things like that but the the work and the show must go on absolutely all right no worries thank you so much for talking to us today this has been super interesting uh, and if you're ever up here in Brisbane hopefully we can uh, talk to you face to face at some point must do that would be great thank you all right, no worries. Thank you so much for joining us, guys. That's been Vanessa Craigie. Um, more wildlife cake and cocktails case studies coming up shortly. Cheers. Bye. Recovery Hub Book of Hope case studies from the Recovering Australian Threatened Species Book of Hope, available from CSIRO Publishing. Uh, today's guest is Doug Bickerton, uh, with a Bachelor of Science in Mathematics from the University of Southern Queensland and a Master's in Natural Resource Management from Adelaide. Uh, Doug has spent uh, many years in a variety of ecological uh, threatened species and natural resource management roles, as well as in planning and policy. Uh, he's currently living in the Kimberley region after uh, 12 or so years with South Australia's Department of Environment, Water and Natural Resources. Uh, we're very lucky to have him on the phone uh, to talk to us today about the spiny daisy. Um, I'll, I'll get him to correct me on this one if I get it wrong. Acanthocladium dockeri, I believe. Um, so, all right, let's, uh, let's uh, welcome Mr. Doug Bickerton. How are you doing today, mate? Yeah, well, thanks, guys. How are you? 
very, very well. A little bit rainy here in Brisbane. Uh, how's things? Uh, where are you uh, calling us from at the moment? Uh, we're, we're in Adelaide. It's very dry here. Mild, mild, low to mid twenties for uh, for Easter 2018. Oh, very nice, very nice. Now, um, I see that you've got a uh, mathematics background. Yeah, a long time ago. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, but obviously spending a lot of uh, a lot of time in uh, ecology and threatened species management. Uh, do you uh, are you kind of in a mathematical modelling capacity in uh, natural resource management? Is that sort of your uh, area? No, I, I use uh, I use my mathematics very little these days. I'm much more in in policy these days. So it's, it was certainly very useful when I was doing my research for stats and that sort of thing. But uh, I've probably moved on from maths, you could say. Right, so these days definitely much more in the uh, planning and policy arena. Um, well, wonderful, wonderful. And uh, you're here to talk to us uh, about the spiny daisy. Now, did I, did I get that name right? Acanthocladium docari? Yeah, spot on, mate. All right, no worries. Now, from what I understand, um, a monotypic genus, so just one species in the Acanthocladium genus, um, a low spreading, uh, you know, under half a metre, uh, whitish grey in colour with spines on the outer branchlets, fine hairs on the oval leaves and branches, and yellow composite flowers. Um, now, it's currently only known from eastern uh, South Australia um, and is critically endangered under the uh, EPBC, that's the uh, Environment and Protection and Biodiversity Conservation Act of 1999, and endangered under South Australia's National Parks and Wildlife Act of 1972. Now, um, as uh, I understand it, there was uh, you know, very little known about it and uh, very few populations. Is, uh, is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. Um you say it's only known from South Australia. The very first record of, of um, spiny daisy was actually collected on the Burke and Wills expe expedition back in 1861. And um, uh, so that was on uh, uh, Medindi Lakes in, in uh, western New South Wales. But, uh, you know, searches in that area since have, have never have failed to locate it there since. Uh, the only, the second record was about 40 years later, 45 years later, uh, 1910 um, on the Murray River in, uh, in the Riverland um, near, near Wakery, a place called Overland Corner. So um, those were the only two records. Uh, we actually thought it was extinct uh, by the 1990s. Uh, despite searches, we'd never found it again around the Murray River or around New South Wales. Um, and then it uh, and then it turned up on um, on a farm in um, in the mid north, about uh, 200 k's north, directly north of Adelaide, in an area we we just hadn't searched. We just didn't think of it there, so it was quite bizarre, really. So the uh, since that time, we've uh, we've discovered actually we've only just discovered a seventh population. Uh, all in that mid-north area, uh, remnant populations. Um, six of the seven are on roadsides, and the seventh is in a small little patch on on uh, private property on a farm. Wow! So that's um, that's uh, not a whole lot of security. I, uh, that's uh, you know also quite incredible. That's uh, despite all the uh, searches and and effort being in to try to find them in in the areas where they were originally discovered. I guess some of these uh, accidental discoveries seem to be uh, a lot of the time a way, the way that some of these uh, 
well, species that we thought were lost uh, do end up being discovered. It seems to be by accident. <laughs> yeah, so all, really all of the uh, discoveries um, in the last 20 years have been opportunistic. Right? People, you know, people have been driving along this same, same road for, for 20 years and then they go, oh, what's that plant there? And then stop and have a look and they go, oh, that's that spiny daisy. That's exactly how it's been found every single time, which is quite bizarre. Yeah, wow. So, um, you uh, so that uh, that new population that's uh, you know in some a, a little bit of uh, did you say uh, bushland or, or scrubland somewhere a bit more secure than the other six roadside populations, which uh, obviously not exactly the most secure location. No, that's right, and that's uh, that that causes some problems for uh, for trying to conserve this species. That there's uh, you know the, the tenure of these sites is is not very secure. Um, you know, they're subject to um, um, the sorts of threats that happen from road maintenance and roadside vegetation maintenance with, uh, with herbicide and, you know, graders, grading unsealed road and, and that sort of thing. Um, in uh, all of the roadside populations are surrounded by um, agricultural land, either cropping or, or, um, or grazing properties and so you have uh, you know you have the herbicide drift and and uh, that sort of thing uh, affecting them as well so the other thing about that is that because the only remnant populations are in that country it's very difficult to ascertain what the natural habitat is for this species because uh, the habitat was cleared so long ago um, that um, we can only guess what was there before we think it may have been native grasslands or grassy woodlands, but then the historic populations, the, you know, the um, Medindi Lakes and the, the um, Overland Corner one up on the Murray River, it was probably somewhere on the, on the banks of, of the river in those cases in, in quite different soil types. So what's, what's going on here? It's very, it was very hard to, um, to actually you know, put together a picture of what, what the remnant, um, uh, what the habitat should be for this species. Right, right. So very different than um, the original habitat they were discovered in. And, you know, obviously, um, you know, being so uh, developed for agriculture, it's probably regrowth habitat and on top of that, quite fragmented from uh, the other populations, which... Um, for, for, for a lot of species, I think, you know, that fragmentation would, of course, naturally be an issue, you know, uh, leading to, you know, low gene flow between populations and less adaptive ability. But um, from what I understand, these plants produce mostly by clonal reproduction anyway. So genetic diversity is already very low. That's right. They tend to, they tend to uh, spread vegetatively from, from root suckers. They, uh, they do have flowers and the flowers do produce seed, not a lot of seed, but uh, the seed seems to have very low viability. Despite our attempts, we've, uh, we've never uh, been successful in, in germinating from seed. Um, so, and the genetic tests we've done have shown that uh, every single population we've discovered is clonal and, uh, but genetically extinct between populations. 
So yeah. So 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 there there is differentiation between the populations, but each population is uh, very much a clonal population. Yeah, that's that's the way it, it seems to be. So um, it's very interesting. We um, uh, being uh, being um, in in that sort of agricultural uh, landscape, it's also subject to uh, um, um, threats from introduced snails. They, um, they little white snails that come off the, the cropping land love love eating the spiny daisy, so it really crops it. Most of these roadsides, you know, the uh, the native vegetation on these is is few and far between. They're, they're mostly very weedy, and it's difficult to um, quite difficult to maintain them. It requires quite a lot of effort in dealing with all the annual weeds and and so forth that come in on those sorts of areas. Yeah, yeah a lot, a lot of uh, a lot of seed pressure from uh, you know just even seeds in the mud and dust being carried on trucks and and that kind of stuff along roadsides. Hey? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and of course rabbits and kangaroos as well. They they'll have a munch on this if there's nothing else around too. Yeah. Okay. Wow. So that makes things pretty tough. You've got a uh, you've got what uh, with the with the new population recently discovered. That's uh, seven populations, six on the roadside, low genetic diversity, low seed production and viability. Um, when did uh, when did you uh, yourself become interested uh, in in these populations, and uh, what sort of actions are, are are currently being being taken to try to, uh, I guess, secure them for the future? Well, the, uh, we you know, we fairly uh, we were we were maintaining those remnant populations, uh, dealing with the weeds and trying to um, trying to control the the snails and the rabbits and that sort of thing, and we have had some successes. Those remnant populations are gradually increasing in size, but they're still they're still restricted to roadsides, and there's only so far they can go. So you know, we we very early realised that we needed to be uh, translocating, we needed to be doing some propagating and um, and planting out in new populations, so we can increase the number of populations, risk you know prevent against the the risk of, of uh, extinction. And so we had one trial uh, again on a roadside near Gladstone where we, um, we, we planted quite a lot of um, plants that we, we grew from cuttings. And we, we did some trials um, w looking at what, the, what we saw were the threats, the, the snails and the rabbits and so forth. And uh, we tried different treatments to see which species, or which, which plants were doing best from those um, those that threat management. From that we learned, uh, we learned quite a lot. Um, after that we were, uh, we were fortunate to get some funding from, um, uh, from FAME, the Foundation for Australia's Most Endangered Species. And that gave us uh, enough money for two years to, um, to trial some translocations on private property where we have better security of tenure. Some of these private property had conservation covenants on them and, and you know, managers who are and landowners and managers who are prepared to, to look after this species. Um, we, we learned quite a lot about that, about different soil types. Some of those worked, some of them were, were, uh, were big failures, but we started to get a better idea of what sort of habitat was more suitable for this species. And um, eventually uh, we thought, well, look, uh, so much of this landscape here in the mid-north of South Australia is, is, has been cleared and is fragmented. 
there's only, only so many places we can try and plant the spiny daisy. Let's go back to the Riverland where that historic uh, location was in 1910 and see if we can find a good site there. Uh, and so we went to uh, went and spoke to uh, the people um, who run Banrock Station. And Banrock Station, quite quite fortunately, it's a, it's a property. It's only four kilometres from that historic location at, at Overland Corner, um, and it's a Ramsar wetland site. It's a, a um, it's a vineyard and. Um, they make their own wines there, but they also it's a you know it's a internationally recognised wetland, and they employ two ecologists to look after their property. It's quite a large property, and so we thought, well, this is a perfect opportunity. These guys are, are going to know how to look after this species, and, and they jumped at the idea. The um, the uh, the marketing people for the for the winery thought, well, yes, look look at this, um, we've got this connection with Bert and Will's expedition, we can really promote this, we can, uh, you know, we can actually make this work for us financially as well as for, you know, conservation purposes. And uh, so we tried three different sites on, um, within uh, Banrock Station, um, within their native vegetation area, and... Um, and uh, they've been incredibly successful. We've been able to fence them, we've been able to cage them to keep the, the herbivores out, the rabbits and the, the kangaroos. And, and in that first year, we were able to give them uh, supplementary water just to get through that first summer. After that, we haven't needed to water them and, uh, and they're just doing fantastic. It's been, uh, been such a success. Yeah. Wow, that's fantastic! So you've got uh, three. Uh, did all three uh, of those uh, populations on the um, on Banrock Station were they all successful? All three? Yeah, um, yeah, one more than the other two, but the other two are successful as well. And we trialled these. These were mixed gene um, translocations, so we took uh, we took cuttings from all of the. We knew six. We knew of six populations at that point, not the seventh. So we took cuttings from all of those, propagated those. Not all of those sites were successful at Banrock Station. Some of them failed. Four out of the six have been reasonable. A couple of them have just been brilliant. So we've learned quite a lot about that, about, uh, about provenance and that sort of thing. And, um, and the other thing that really worked at Banrock Station was we were able to choose sites they were within vegetation, but we were able to till the soil beforehand. And spiny daisy being a plant that, that spreads vegetatively, you know, loves um, loved having that, that turned soil nice and friable, put its roots out, and it just uh, it was such a success. Okay, so you've got these uh, uh, translocated populations um, at uh, you know, a few more secure sites. And uh, on top of that, what, what, uh, how much uh, action are you doing to support the existing populations there? Obviously, they're a little bit uh, fragmented and... Uh, you know, the, the existing populations, all those ones in the mid-north, uh, there's, a, there's a, an NGO here in South Australia called Trees for Life and um, our department has contracted Trees for Life to uh, maintain those sites. So there's quite regular... Uh, weed maintenance and uh, snail control that happens at those sites. 
um, and that's really it's been it's quite um, quite intensive work that has to happen there, uh, but it is paying off, and those populations are increasing. Uh, one of them in particular is quite substantially, and and is, is really self-sustaining, which is which is fantastic. Um, and then um, you know there there've been various translocations we had tried around um, around the mid north. As I was saying, some files, some some worked. All in all, including the uh, the Benrock translocations, we maybe have uh, I don't know eight eight that have been quite successful. So we've we've managed to more than double the the number of populations of of this particular species. And with the with the Riverland um, uh, populations, we've increased the total distribution, the total extent of occurrence of the species quite quite considerably so it's, it's been quite successful in that respect um, yeah well wow, that's fantastic um so pretty much uh, at least doubling the population size from uh, the sounds of it um and uh i i, I guess uh you know there's been a a bunch of different successes here supporting the existing populations of translocations and into those original riverlands areas um I guess, uh, what's the situation for the uh, spiny daisy now, and what's the, uh, what do you think of the reason is for these uh, these successes in in uh, protecting this species? I've got to say, there's been uh, a couple of different people within the department who have just uh, persisted in times when uh, when funding was difficult to get, and have just said, look, we need to really ensure that we do something to to make sure this, there's some continuity in this project, and um, uh, that's that's been uh, that's been really important, and and part of the reason why that worked was that uh, you know there was some lateral thinking and going into partnership with NGOs. Uh, initially, we were working with a small group called Threatened Plant Action Group. Uh, they did a lot of the groundwork in the early days. Um, as I said, Trees for Life have, have put. Um, substantial work into the project in the last um, seven or eight years. Uh, the Foundation for the Most Endangered put some funding into it. So there's lots of NGOs like that. There's um, uh, the Mid-Murray Local Action Plan Group. Uh, I've got a little uh, translocation site uh, down near Cambrai, which is which is going quite well. So, so those NGO partnerships have been really important and also engaging with Benrock Station, that private industry partnership has, has uh, been a major part of the success. Um, I think um, dealing with the threat management early on and just learning, learning what, the, what the real issues were for it and just keeping on, on trying translocation after translocation to figure out what the best soil type was one of our early uh, translocations was um, was to um, the arid lands, the arid lands botanic gardens in Port Augusta, and we noticed that one did really well, and it was in very sandy soil, whereas a lot of the remnant populations have, have got quite a, a degree of, of um, clay in them, and that was quite interesting. So, when we went to Banrock Station, we said, "Well, let's try some more sandy soils and see how it goes," and that's. That's just been a huge success. So that's that's been you know learning, just learning from your mistakes, and engaging with the community, bringing bringing the community on side, the local councils that have you know got these roadside populations, 
um, showing, you know, getting them aware of the importance of this species so that they um, they adjust their road maintenance activities. Um, Banrock Station, they, the marketing arm that they they have there, they've really um, uh, increased the the profile uh, of this species within um, the Riverland area, and um, you know they they use it as, as part of that badger. They, they they put the spiny daisy on one of their wines as well. So they're, they're quite quite proud of quite proud of their achievements. Um, so that extra attention has been really important for, um, for the continuity of, of the project, yeah. Yeah, fantastic. Well, look, it sounds like there's um, a lot of support for, uh, you know, again, you know, a lot of these threatened species, whether they are, you know, really enigmatic and, uh, you know, traditionally sort of appealing, but even... You know, it just goes to show even things like the spiny daisy can uh, can get themselves on a bottle of wine, and uh, yeah, good on them. I think it's uh, absolutely fantastic. Um, how does the uh, how does the future look for uh, the spiny daisy at the moment? I think um, it's it's looking fairly bright. I think it will. To be honest, it will need a continued conservation effort for some time before we can turn around and say all these populations can look after themselves. Finding more sites like um, like Banrock where we've got good secure tenure, people who are prepared to uh, put in the effort in the early days. Uh, National Trust of South Australia have got a, a, a site on, on their property at Willabalangaloo which is near, um, near Berry. So that's another example of, of um, the sort of thing that's needed. So, in in the short to medium term, there needs to be continued conservation efforts for this species. But in the long term, it looks quite promising, and you know, it uh, it won't be too long before we'll be able to say, well, look, we can um, we can improve on the conservation of this species, uh, the status of this species under the EPBC Act, which would be fantastic. Fantastic. Well, no, it is. It is always fantastic to see uh, things which are listed as threatened or or underneath a certain uh, category of vulnerability get to get delisted because of uh, hard work of people such as yourself. So, um, yeah, thank you very much for uh, sharing this uh, this case study with us. This has been absolutely fantastic and uh, very very interesting. And I guess uh, hope to uh, see a bright future for the spiny daisy. Yeah. Thanks very much, Yana. Thanks for giving me the opportunity to have a chat about it. No worries, mate. Happy to talk to you. And uh, yeah, cheers. Uh, I guess we uh, hope to hear from you uh, in the future if there's uh, any more positive developments. All right, cheers. All right. Thanks, uh, Doug. Uh, everybody, that's been uh, Doug Bickerton. Um, and uh, we will talk to you again soon with more Wildlife Cake and Cocktails TSR Hub case studies from the TSR Hub Book of Hope, Recovering Australian Threatened Species, available from CSIRO Publishing. Cheers, guys. Talk soon. Bye.
And we're back with another Wildlife Cake and Cocktails case study for the Threatened Species Recovery Hub. Today we're talking the Tumut Grevillea with John Briggs. Uh, John got his Bachelor of Science in Forestry from the Australian National Uni and started a career in 1977 working with Professor Lindsay Pryor identifying Australia's rare or threatened eucalypt species. After seven year, 17 years at the CSIRO plant industry in Canberra, compiling a list of uh, Australian rare or threatened species and developing a threat category coding system, he's uh, also gone on to produce several books and publications, uh, many publications, uh, one for example being the Rare and Threatened Australian Plants from 1995. Uh, for the last 23 years, he's also worked as a Senior Threatened Species Officer for the New South Wales National Parks and Wildlife Service, now part of the Office of Environment and Heritage, uh, mainly in an operational role to protect and recover threatened plants in southeast New South Wales, including the Tumut Grevillea. Uh, so that's what we're here to talk about today. Uh, John, thanks so much for joining us. You're welcome. No worries. And uh, whereabouts are you at the moment? Um, I work in Queanbeyan. Queanbeyan. All right. So obviously not too far from where the uh, Tumut Grevillea uh, is in the wild. Yeah, it's a couple of hours drive, but not that far. Yeah, not as far as we are up here in Brisbane, obviously. So, all right, let's get into this case study. So the uh, Tumut Grevillea, Grevillea wilkins, uh, wilkinsonii, um, about a two-metre-tall shrub with purpley pink flowers, lilac pink style with a pale yellow tip. Uh, is that about right? Yep, that's pretty good. Probably actually gets up to three and a half metres as a fully mature plant. And uh, can can sprawl out to about four meters across the ground into a, into a pretty uh, broad shrub. Yes, yes, yes. So it is a big shrub. Yeah. Okay. Um, so obviously, um, a little bit of uh, uh, issues here for them regarding conservation. What was actually the issue for the Tumut grevillea? I understand that they were, had uh, fairly small, confined subpopulations. Yes. So um, it's confined to just a largely just a six kilometre stretch of the Goobraganda River east of Tumut, and there's only um, nine sort of subpopulations there. So they're they're very small and fragmented. Um, most are on private land, um, and they have been under threat, um, particularly in the past, from stock grazing and clearing, um, but also floods. Um, have been a major issue, particularly since 2010, where between 2010 and 2012 floods, we lost half the remaining natural population, plus a lot of the plantings that we'd been doing. Well, so it's quite interesting that uh, so many of these uh, are contained on, um, I guess, private land. Yeah, it's not uncommon, I suppose, for a lot of threatened species, and one of the reasons they are threatened, because... Uh, they're, um, they're on land that people want to farm and graze, and so um, that has a big impact on, on species that uh, are living outside National Park. Right, right. So obviously land clearing, stock grazing, and, uh, and you know, anytime there's agricultural stuff, there's going to be uh, some, some impacts from other invasive uh, plant species, uh, I guess, competing. Um, is that kind of the situation for the Grevillea at the moment? Um, yes, absolutely. Um, we've managed to control most of the grazing threats by, by fencing off most of the sites. Um, we've still got some problems with stock getting across the river and accessing some of the populations from time to time. And unfortunately, four of those subpopulations do occur on a property that the landowner is not um, particularly cooperative uh, with in regard to the program. So they're still getting grazed and we're seeing a continual gradual decline of those, co those populations. 
Um, the other issue, yeah, is blackberry. So that's actually been one of our major actions is spraying out blackberry because being a riparian shrub, it's also a really suitable habitat for blackberry. So there's a lot of competition happening there, but we're getting on top of that now. So um, things are looking better. We can't we can't do much about the floods, so that's a bit of a beyond our control. Right, right. Obviously, a bit of a, a bit of a challenge uh, for a lot of uh, species with changing climate conditions and flood conditions and, and things like that in the future. Yeah, and I think things like this shrub that's riparian, it's, it's very vulnerable to these sort of major extreme events and with, you know, climate change forecasts, uh, these more frequent and extreme events, you know, are, are on the cards. So I guess it's going to be an ongoing um, issue for us, which is why we, um, after the 2012 flood, have sort of changed our replanting philosophy a bit and, and planting above the flood line now because we've actually learnt that the grevillea will grow on the drier slopes um, in sort of, I guess, drier conditions than we ever thought it would. So at least we're trying to eliminate that threat by, by planting well outside the flood zone and so far things are going pretty well which is good. So planning and planting a little bit for the future at the moment, I, I suppose. Yeah, well, I guess with this species, the, the planting has proved really important. Um, I guess the first sort of actions you would do is try and protect the natural populations but for species. But in this case, we, the, the amount of available habitat in the remaining sites is so small that we've, we've felt we've needed to find some new sites where, where there's more habitat that it can expand into. Um, yeah, so, so that's why we've, we've looked to do some enhancement planting and, and some actually establishing a few new sites just to start building the numbers up and, and reverse that population, that downward population trend. Right, a few security populations and things that are outside of that uh, that flood line, obviously quite important. Yes. Well, look, uh, let's get let's get into the details of some of the actions that you guys uh, have taken. You mentioned some of the uh, uh, grazing management and weed management. Um, what are some of the other, uh, I guess, uh, conservation actions that were taken for this plant? Well, probably the you know the first and um, significant uh, action was way back in 1993, um, before I was even involved when um, staff from the Australian National Botanic Gardens and the Society for Growing Australian Plants actually did a small planting down there um, at a few sites. Um, one of them was on this drier slope um, near, near one of the known populations, but a site that you probably would expect it not to do well. But in retrospect, it's, it's proven to be a really successful site and, and that population started with just a planting of eight plants and that's now expanded to, um, uh, at our last census in November, up to 763 plants at that site. So that's where we learned that it can grow in a drier situation and um, above the flood zone. So that was a really successful start. And that sort of success led us to start doing some additional plantings when I got involved around 2000. Um, so we have selected at that stage another private property site that had 13 natural plants, um, but a large part of that habitat was was choked with blackberry. So we sprayed out the blackberry, got the site cleared up, and then over time got about 50 additional plants established there. And that's now expanded to about 220 
plants, so it's recruited successfully there um, since 2000. And again, part of that planting was up on a drier ridge that ran up from the river. Um, and interestingly, that's the part of the site where we've had recruitment. Down on the river flat, the plants grew really well, but because of the thick grass cover, um, we actually seen no recruitment down on the river. And then after the 2012 flood, we actually lost all those big plants on the river flat. So it was a good thing that we had actually planted up onto that ridge. So we've still, despite the flood damage, got now 220 at that site. Since then, we've moved on to another couple of sites or three sites where we've started planting um, probably about 2010, although we lost a lot of those in the, in the floods. But again, we've moved up slope at those sites. So um, since 2013, we've just been planting at those other sites above the flood zone. And we're just about at the stage, I hope, where we'll start to see recruitment from those plantings. Um, the plants, you know, they're, they're now sort of up to five years old and starting to produce some significant quantities of seeds. So we're just waiting and hoping now that we'll see a similar success at those sites where that we've seen at those other two sites um, of recruit, natural recruitment, which is what is the aim of the program, so that they'll become self-sustaining populations. Yeah, that's uh, that's very interesting that the um, the riparian populations or, or plantings didn't do so well. Obviously, they've got enough nutrients, they've got enough water, so they're going to vegetate quite nicely. But yeah. uh, that spatial competition for root space uh, and I guess for seeding space and... Um, and, and the flooding on top of it must be just a bit too much for them to handle. Yes, well, I mean, that, that 2012 flood event was, was, it was a record flood and it tore out, a, a, it, I mean, tore out, washed out a lot of the soil. So, I mean, the whole plants just got washed out by their roots, basically, as, as did most of the native vegetation along that river. So they really had no hope. Um, but anyway, um, now we've learned we have to avoid that sort of habitat. Um, some seed from the plantings may well spill down into that flood zone and we might get recruitment and survivorship there in time, but our initial focus will be to put the plants out of the flood zone so we don't have the setbacks that we saw in 2010 and 2012. Yeah, right. Well, um, the other interesting point here as well is, as we mentioned, is a, a lot of these are on private land. Um, uh, how has the engagement been with uh, uh, private landholders? Uh, I, I guess you probably need to get a lot of permission to even allow to be uh, on their property to do actions such as weed control or fencing or, or whatever it is that you need to do. Yep, that's certainly really critical to any of these recovery programs, whether on private land. And I guess initially, back in 2000, it was actually hard to find people who were interested in letting us do this work on their properties. But in the last few years, um, we've certainly found a much better response. And so we've had a few landholders now happy for this to happen, um, which is fantastic. And of course, without that, we wouldn't have the sites to plant into and, and um, we'd have a big problem. But fortunately, um, most of the landowners that I've been dealing with now are are really quite enthusiastic about the program and, and happy for this work to happen um, and are quite interested in, in the success of the, of the project. Yeah, that's awesome. Oh, well, it's good to hear that there's uh, been some, you know, increasing community involvement and, uh, and support and, uh, and interest in this plant. That's always, uh, that's always very important for these projects. Absolutely. 
All right, awesome. Um, well, look, um, what's the uh, situation for the tumic grevillea um, at the moment? How uh, obviously uh, some of the plantings are, are going quite successful, and you're getting some natural recruitment. Is that right? Yes, yes. Well, as I mentioned, that uh, first 1993 planting, it's it's expanded from you know eight plants then to now 760 or so now. So that's a m- massive increase, and and that's why we feel uh, optimistic that our subsequent plantings will hopefully also expand in that sort of uh, rate. Um, yeah, so our total um, number of plants has increased from around uh, 93, it was about 600. We're now up to, despite all those uh, setbacks with the floods and cattle grazing, we're up to you know around 1,500 plants. Um, and um, But the interesting thing with this species, I think, is that... Um, you know, 87% now of the, that total population of 1,500 are actually either planted plants or recruitment derived from planted plants. So the, the planting program in this, this particular species has clearly been really important for its recovery. Um, without that, you know, we'd be looking at our natural population. Now it's down around 200 plants. That's, a, that's, a, that's an incredible turnaround over, over 15 years. Absolutely, absolutely, a big turnaround. So that's very encouraging um, for the species. Um, I didn't mention, but there's in the last few years, uh, a little small colony of eight plants has been discovered out at Gundagai, which is quite some distance away in quite a different habitat. Yeah, and that form of that plant, it's, it's a prostrate plant rather than an erect shrub, so quite a different, so it's obviously been genetically isolated for quite some time. Anyway, we're working with the, uh, that plant, that population straddles two, basically two house blocks there. They're large blocks, but but basically house blocks on the edge of town. But those landowners are cooperating with us and we're trying to propagate those plants now and build up that population as well. So, um... That's probably you know one of our new focuses is is to is to build that the population of that form of the of the species up um, because it's pretty precarious at eight plants. Um, so hopefully in time we can build that up to a few hundred. Yeah, well, and awesome that it's uh, you know um, I guess locally adapted for whatever reason to be uh, uh, more prostrate uh, for for whatever reason. That's um, quite fascinating. It is, and you know, obviously it's been isolated from the other population for a long time. But other than the form, it looks very—it um, looks very similar in terms of flowers and fruit and leaf shape. Um, so at the moment, it's just considered part of that species. Um, but we're obviously sort of almost treating it as a as a subspecies, and we won't mix those populations. We'll be trying to find some additional sites to establish some new colonies of, 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 or populations of that form, just as insurance. Uh, obviously, it's very precarious. Everything at one site is something drastic happened. There was a severe wildfire that could wipe them out or something. We, we'd like to have some others around geographically separate to give the plant... Yeah, a few, a few other baskets of eggs just in case. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, wonderful. Well, look, um, I guess uh, we do need to wrap things up fairly shortly, but um, it's it's quite incredible that you've gone from you know six hundred to fifteen hundred plants in some uh, you know fifteen or so years, um, and now you're getting some natural recruitment as well from 
from the the plantings that you're putting in. Um, just just before we kind of uh, wrap things up, um, what are some of the reasons for success uh, for for the success that you guys have been having on this project? Um, many, I suppose, um, but particularly, obviously, that, that that we've got landholders who are cooperative um, in the project and letting us actually do the work on their land. Um, so that's been really important. Um, the fact that we're actually able to grow this species, um, initially we grew them from cuttings, now we're actually growing them from seeds. So it means that our plantings will have more genetic diversity. Yeah, they're not just going to be clones of, of, of the same plant, yeah. That's right. So so that's been a good advance. Um, um, I guess the fact that we can successfully establish them and that they have demonstrated they will recruit given the right habitat and the right management. So that's all positive for us. Um, yes, I think, and also I suppose being relatively accessible site, it's not, it's only two hours from here. I can realistically go down there and water the plantings to get them through the summer. Um, you know, if in more remote sites that becomes a much more, uh, a bigger problem. So at least access to the sites is relatively good. So that certainly helps in, in this sort of program. Um, yeah, so I think they're probably the main factors, I suppose, basically that we know what the main threats are and that we are able to manage most of them. And even the flood problem, we have sort of found a way around that by planting them outside the flood zone and the plants are actually surviving there. And I guess it's just because we, we didn't, we were always blinkered in a way as to what was the original distribution of this species because we were only sort of left with what we found in in the early 90s and um, never really knew how far above outside the river or riparian zone it occurred. I suppose we still don't know, but at least it looks like it did occur above the current like riparian area. So I guess that means we've got some more potential habitat to plant into, which is good. Oh, it's good to hear. Well, it's uh, it's it's good to you know, especially to you know, get that knowledge that the um, the grevillea itself is spread a bit uh, further and wider, and uh, I guess maybe some some more survey efforts are needed. Yeah, look, I'm not very optimistic we'll find any more natural populations, though, um, because the species is highly palatable to grazing. Um, um, I suspect that in most sites where it may have once occurred, it's been grazed out. Uh, the main reason it survived along the river is that um, often where they'd done the clearing, they piled up logs on the top of the riverbank and that basically built a barrier from the stock getting down to the plants along the river's edge. So I think it was sort of protected by that, basically. Okay. So I, I, I guess it's, uh, you know, just more and more effort into the, uh, the plantings and the propagation programs. Yes, yes, we'll continue that planting and find a few more sites and um, hopefully we'll start seeing some more natural recruitment at some of the later planting sites and the population, positive population trend will continue into the future. No worries, no worries. Well, look, fingers crossed. Um, uh, I guess uh, speaking of the future, just while we wrap it up, how, how do you, how do you uh, estimate the future is looking for uh, the Chimic Grevillea? Well, I'm pretty positive about this species, I guess because we, we are seeing that good response to the, um, to, to, to the planting and the natural recruitment happening if, as long as we select uh, the suitable habitat and um, manage it appropriately. 
Um, so I think, you know, I've already got a demonstrated positive uh, population trend there. So I'm optimistic that we can continue that for quite some time now. Um, I'm looking forward to trying to build up the Gundagai provenance um, to some larger numbers. Um, those are those are the uh, eight uh, more uh, prostrate form, yeah? Yes, yes. To build that one up now is probably the most urgent in many ways, but um, it is also sort of waiting with some um, excitement, I suppose, to see recruitment start to happen at our most recent planting sites now that the plants are, are getting to a stage of, of producing significant quantities of seed. So we could expect in the next couple of years, I think, to start to see seedlings coming up like we did at that second site that we started in 2000. Well, no worries. Well, look, fingers crossed, hopefully we see some seedlings coming up, uh, more and more natural recruitment from uh, the plantings and uh, the remaining natural populations, and in particular um, from those eight uh, out in uh, in the Gundagai area. That's, uh, yeah, that's very fascinating. I guess we'll be uh, waiting to, to see what happens with uh, these plants in the future. Indeed. Indeed. No worries, John. Thank you so much for talking to us today. This has been uh, super interesting, and uh, I hope we can talk to you at some point in the future, particularly about those uh, those uh, newly discovered ones out uh, a bit further in the arid zone. Yes, I'll be pleased to give you an update in a few years. Hopefully, it'll be a very positive uh, um, report. Yeah, no worries. Well, well, fingers crossed over here from everybody at WCC. And uh, that's it for today. Guys, uh, that's been John Briggs on the Chimic Grevillea. Plenty more wildlife cake and cocktails coming up for you shortly. case study for the Threatened Species Recovery Hub Book of Hope. Uh, we're talking New South Wales orchid conservation with Jeff Robertson today. Very interesting uh, show. Uh, Jeff ha has started uh, as a Bachelor of Science in Plant Biology at the University of Sydney in 1987. After that, he moved on to the Royal Botanical Gardens in Sydney as a plant taxonomist uh, and then working on fire ecology at uh, both the Botanic Gardens and the Uni of New South Wales. Uh, in 1996, he transferred over to threatened species research at national parks and wildlife for the New South Wales government, now the Office of Environment and Heritage. Jeff has extensive experience in threatened plant research and recovery, particularly native orchids, including development and implementation of threatened orchid recovery plans. Jeff, how are you doing today? Thank you uh, so much for joining us. Hi, I'm doing very well. Thanks. How are you? I'm uh, very well, very well. A uh, little bit cold up here, finally. But uh, how's how's things down there? A little bit colder, uh, obviously, down south in uh, where where you are. Yeah, in Canberra at this time of year. Yeah, it's starting to get a bit chilly. Yeah. Okay. And um, you you do work a little bit as well in the, uh, or you have at least worked a little bit a bit in the Kosciuszko ranges up there, where it where it certainly gets cold. Yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah, I've done a fair bit of work up there on a, on 
you know, post-fire recovery from the 2003 fires and also um, the wild horse population, looking at the impact of the horses and also uh, estimating their abundance. Um, yeah, field work's over for the year up there pretty much. Uh, late, uh, late May's about as far as you can go in the year. Oh, that's nice. They don't make you trudge through there in winter. Well, look, that's good. Well, no, some people do. Some people do, yes, uh, but not me. <laughs> I'm, yeah, I, I wouldn't mind going for a ski, but uh, no, it's never been my role. Yeah, right. Well, look, uh, we, we better move on to our subject today. These are uh, three endangered orchid species uh, occurring in uh, southern New South Wales. Um, so there's the Sandhill Spider Orchid, uh, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, Caledenia arenaria. Yeah, that's right. Caledonia arenaria, yeah. Arenaria. As in sand-loving. Ah, a sand-loving. Okay, yeah. And the crimson spider orchid is uh, Caledonia concolla. That's right. And uh, there's the uh, Oakland's Dionys, or um, I, I love this name, the donkey orchid, Dionys calotrophila. That's right. It's Diurus calotrophila, as in pine-loving. Um, the, the habitat for that one's predominantly open pine woodland or areas that probably were open pine woodland prior to um, pastoral use and obviously clearing of trees and so on. Okay. All right. So these three uh, three southern New South Wales orchid species, uh, can you tell us a little bit about them? What do they look like? Well, uh, they're all terrestrial orchids. They're, they're not up in the trees. Um, epiphytically, uh, they emerge as a leaf usually in the late autumn or winter uh, with the onset of autumn rain uh, and the leaf uh, sits above ground for four or five months. Uh, in late uh, August you get a flower uh, spike emerging and that usually for the caledonias opens in early September and they flower for about a month. So the sandhill spider orchid, spider orchid uh, has quite a large flower. It can be um, up to uh, 10 centimetres from um, top to bottom, really, yeah. And it, but it's fairly pale. It has predominantly white or yellowish with little reddish highlights on the ends of the petals and the sepals and on the, the landing platform for the insects the, um, that in orchids, uh, that petal's called the labellum. Uh, the crimson spider orchid, is, as its name suggests, um, has a very similar shape to the sandhill spider orchid. So they they have very long, narrow segments, um, but they're a, a really bright crimson colour uh, all over the flower. So it's it's just completely crimson. Uh, in other respects, they look almost identical. They they have a leaf that um, is about mm, up to ten centimetres long, sometimes a little bit longer. The flower gets to sometimes about 30 centimetres high and, in, and up to about 10 centimetres from um, top to bottom. Um, by the end of September, it's usually getting a bit hot and, and particularly with those kinds of um, orchids, when they get pollinated, the flowers close uh, and the pod then develops, which usually takes around six weeks. So, you know, late October, mid-November, it's all finished for those two species and uh, the plant retreats underground to persist over the uh, hotter times of the year as a tuber, then re-emerging again the following year, providing there's sufficient rain. The 
uh, Oakland's diurus is a donkey orchid, so it has quite a different shape. Um, they're called donkey orchids because they have um, a couple of the segments have little um, ears, if you like, that look a bit like a donkey, hence the name. Um, this one's, and they come in a variety of, of colours, the donkey orchids, so they're often yellowish, um, but also purple or purple and white, and this is in the purple and white group. And um, flowers a bit later in the year, in mid-November, but the leaves again emerge in oh, late autumn, early winter, and they um, stay around until oh, the flower spike emerges in in about late October. Flowers coming up are in usually full flower in mid-November, so it's tolerant of. of hotter and drier conditions than the two Caledonia Caledonias and you tend to see it in years when the other the other two uh, just simply don't emerge at all because it's too dry. Uh, again, you know, usually if it gets pollinated the flower uh, the pods take six weeks or so to develop. So um, by Christmas time it's usually all overing again. It retreats underground to persist as a tuber over the you know, middle of summer and through the early part of the autumn. Yeah, right. So, um, like a lot of orchids, are obviously spending a lot of their time basically as a bulb underground in that tuber form. Right. Okay. So, um, what was the uh, what? What exactly was the issue for these guys? I understand uh, fairly small population sizes uh, and threatened by a, a large number of things. Yeah. Basically, they're all a little bit different. Um, we have the greatest number of populations these days for the sandhill spider orchid, but initially when um, we started work on this one, it was only known from one site, but we did an extensive survey back in the late 90s and early 2000s and fairly quickly found um, populations in about three state forests. Um, and some of those are substantial, like in 2016 one of those turned out to be you know, around a 1,000 plants or maybe a little bit more even. Uh, but the others are, are these days fairly small, um, down around the, a few hundred at most. Uh, there's also some on private land uh, and some on a roadside as well, but that population is extremely small. The... Crimson spider orchid was a different case of, um, entirely. Uh, that one was only known initially from a hill um, just near Albury, and the population there has fluctuated between four and 15 or 16 plants over the last 20 or 30 years. Uh, and in the last couple of years, it um, well, last year there was nothing emerged at all, and the previous year only one leaf emerged. So we're actually at the moment not 100% sure um, how many of those plants have survived. Um, for the Oakland's diurus, it was originally known just on the edge of um, the town of Oakland's in uh, uh, southern New South Wales. That's about an hour's drive or so from to the northwest of Albury. And again, we conducted survey uh, and found it at a couple of other locations as well. But it's pretty small in all. It's a, it, it has a pretty confined distribution of, um, extending about 50 kilometres from Oakland to the other sites. And most of the populations are pretty small. There's a, you know, a couple of hundred perhaps on, on private land, um, some on, on 
a travelling stock reserve some on some council land near the town of Urana, and then the domain population is um, still just on the edge of the small town of Oakland. Um, that one gets up to around a thousand plants in a good season. Um, one of the things that, uh, yeah, they're all pretty small. The, the other thing to point out is that when we first started work on them, excepting for the crimson spider orchid, um, there were far more plants than we see today. That millennium drought um, really seemed to result in a big decline in populations at all sites. So, for example, on one of the state forests, the initial estimate was around 4,000 plants. Well, today... Um, it, there's probably only 400. So we probably had a tenfold decline over that time. And in fact, we would have, until 2016, we thought it was even greater. But it turned out that in 2016, there was a lot of rain between uh, June and the flowering time. And it, uh, I was able to make a, a reasonable count. And so, yeah, I'd estimate there'd be, yeah, about 400 there. So still a big decline, but it, and that was apparent at nearly all sites. So look, I'd uh, I'd read about um, small population sizes, but some of these are, are um, you know basically right on the edge. Indeed, yeah. This I've got to say though, for the the, the one that seems most precarious uh, is the Caledonia concolor. That one, there are some small populations in Victoria as well, but they don't number more than a, a you know a couple of hundred plants at most. Uh, last year, though in the process of surveying for some sites to propagate and then um, uh, translocate the Caledonia concolor, we actually came across a substantial wild population of some um, four or 500 plants, which was a, a very pleasant bonus. And in fact, I don't, that, did, that didn't actually make it into the Book of Hope, I don't think. Oh, well, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll keep, keep it secret so people don't know where to, to go and get them just yet. No, that's right. Uh, yeah, we'll have to do that, unfortunately. That's one of the, particularly for that particular plant, the crimson spider orchid, there are stories uh, in the Albury area of people actually collecting bunches of them, which were probably not the primary cause of decline, but it certainly won't do them any help. I think, um, as in, you know, given that nearly all of these plants occur in the sheep wheat belt, the primary cause of decline has been habitat loss and then um, grazing influences and so on, rather than, than, than collection from the wild. But if the populations have declined, then uh, obviously any further uh, collection is detrimental. Right. So the main causes of decline are probably those uh, exotic herbivores and the inappropriate land management. And I, I assume um, with agricultural land, you're going to get some competition from, from weeds and other agricultural plant species. As well. That's right. I mean, we, you just simply do not find any of these plants today on, plant, uh, on property used for um, pastoral or uh, agricultural pursuits. Um, then those, you know... Orchids are highly palatable, and if you have grazing animals, then they just simply will eventually, you know, be um, be eliminated. You know, they they can persist for a while, but if the tuber's resources continuously get uh, become exhausted through the leaf being grazed continuously, and then any uh, and there's no recruitment because all the flower stalks get eaten, then eventually they just disappear out of the landscape. So the interesting thing is that. Um, where we find these plants hanging in there, um, none of those uh, issues of 
you know, major issues with weeds or grazing exist on sites. Um, they, they've hung on in, those, in environments where those things just don't occur. So the threats to them at the existing sites are primarily um, small population sizes. There are some weeds in the environment, but the actual, uh, and inevitably if there was a, a major incursion of particularly annual exotic grasses, as has occurred in some of these um, environments close by these orchids, then they would be eliminated. But we're fortunate in that that hasn't yet happened at any of the current sites. Right, right. Okay, well, um, considering uh, that we know a little bit about some of the risks to them and, and uh, their obvious small population sizes, um, what, what are some of the, uh, I guess, changes to uh, management regimes uh, and other actions that, uh, that were planned to try to help these things? Well, the primary thing was to understand how to propagate these orchids and then try and increase the population sizes and, if possible, uh, establish new populations in within the habitat range of the species, uh, particularly given the declines that we've been seeing. Um, so what we've done is engage the Royal Botanic Gardens in Victoria to undertake propagation of all three species. Um, they had done a lot of work on caledonias and uh, the orchid species in Victoria and had had some success. And uh, we were very fortunate in that um, they were successful. So they've, they're in the process of propagating about 3,000 crimson spider orchids for us, uh, probably about or oh, 1,000 of the sandhill spider orchids and um, a couple of thousand of the Oakland donkey orchids as well. And our hope, yeah, so it's a substantial project funded through the New South Wales Environmental Environmental Trust and involving a number of stakeholders, obviously. Um, the primary stakeholder is the, um, well, there's a bunch of us, actually. There's the New South Wales Office of Environment and Heritage, and we're providing a lot of the... Um, technical background. There's the Royal Botanic Gardens in Melbourne, which is doing all the propagation for us. There's the Murray Local Land Services, which is managing the administrative aspects of the project. Uh, there's New South Wales State Forests, because a lot of the appropriate sites to plant some of these species back into the environment are on New South Wales Forest Corporation lands. And also the Australian Network for Plant Conservation, is involved because they uh, provide and they have a lot of experience with um, plant translocations and particularly with orchids and things of that nature. And as well, some of the property or oh, some of the lands on which these species occur, um, particularly the uh, crimson spider orchid and the Oakland's donkey orchid, are uh, on Crown land. So New South Wales Crown lands is one of the stakeholders as well. So it's uh, yeah, there's a there's a number of us who are really working together as best we can to uh, try and ensure that we can get these things back into the environment in sites where they'll hopefully persist into the long in the long term. Wow, that's obviously um uh, like a really strong base of collaborators and stuff uh, coming together to help these things. That's uh that's I guess uh. Uh, a really encouraging sign um, for uh, for your uh, recovery plans. Um, it is. I mean, the thing is, when you're down to one site, which 
we were in New South Wales for the Crimson Spider Orchid and you have limited options in terms of planting it back into the environment. There are some suitable um, national parks um, where we'll be... Uh, oh, I should say, yes, the new suitable national parks. The New South Wales National Parks and Wildlife Service is one of the other stakeholders, uh, a major one now, because um, one of the... Yeah, this site where we found the uh, the population of the Crimson Spider Orchid last year is actually on National Park Estate, and we will and we intend to... Um, Establish some of the new populations on National Parks Estate uh, in the sort of Albury district. Um, yeah, yeah. When you're down to those, you know, so few sites with some of these things, and you just sometimes get these um, random stochastic events, uh, you need to have more than one site. It's as simple as that. The likelihood of something persisting in the long term with just one or two sites is minimal. Um, uh, particularly if the, you know, the we're not 100% sure what the impact of climate change is likely to be on these. It's likely to be detrimental if um, the sorts of events like the uh, millennium drought um, become more common, more common. And so establishing some more populations uh, will hopefully provide us a little bit more resilience in the event that some of those sites um, become unsuitable. You know, so for example, last year it seemed with uh, a lot of those species of, well, you know, the Sandhill Spider Orchid was a good example. The previous year I, I surveyed and I found perhaps a thousand individuals in 2017, um, no plants emerged that I could confidently identify as Caledonia aranara. Uh, can Caledonia concolor, as I mentioned, it didn't emerge at all at uh, one site, but where we did find it, for some reason or another, they just had, you know, it's a hill and they happen to have had rain in that surrounding district and that, that's a, a good example of why you, you really need to have multiple sites for these things and why we established this large project to uh, undertake a lot of propagation and then uh, establishment of new populations. Right, right. Look, unfortunately, we do have to wrap things up fairly soon. We're running out of time here, but um, look, you guys have had some pretty, uh, you know, amazing success with doing some of the, you know, on-ground weed control and augmenting those populations. From uh, from what I understand, um, just just briefly, what are some of the reasons for you know getting, uh, you know, having such a successful project and, and getting that support behind you? And um, what do you think the future of the species is looking like at the moment? Well. Um I think one of the major reasons we've been able to undertake this program is the New South Wales Environmental Trust providing a substantial amount of funding in order to support the propagation because that's quite expensive. It's a very labour-intensive job to actually undertake propagation of orchids. You know, the uh, the fungal partner of the orchid, uh, because they have a symbiotic relationship with a, with a fungus, um, needs to be extracted under a microscope essentially and then and then cultured and then the orchid seed collected and then sown onto that culture and then those cultures need to be looked after and managed and then the plants pricked out and grown upon eventually into pots. So you can imagine that that's a very expensive process. So without the funding from the New South Wales Environmental Trust, uh, this project simply wouldn't have got off the ground. So that's the number one thing, really, uh, that's allowed us to do this. Otherwise, we, we would have tried to do the same thing, but it would have inevitably been on a much smaller scale. You know, we might have been trying to establish populations of 100 plants instead of, you know, for some of these species, up to two or 3,000. Um, and I think the thing is you, you need big numbers in some of these situations in order to ensure that you have a, a large uh, 
you know, in order to avoid some of those effects that you get in tiny populations of inbreeding depressions where the plants lose fitness and become unable to uh, establish new populations because the seed viability becomes very low. Um, we should be able to, with some of the, the size of the populations, avoid those sorts of issues which seem to have plagued some of the sites. So for the, for the Caledonia um, concolor, the crimson spider orchid, one of the seed pods we collected has got um, turned out to have a fantastic germination rate. One of the other ones we collected had virtually none, and presumably that's the result of some of these issues that you find with really tiny populations. I think um, with this project going forward, we've got a really good chance of trying to ensure that these things can persist into the next century um, a long way and hopefully mitigate some of the effects of climate change, which I think will be dire for some of those species. Right, right. Well, look, hopefully with uh, more eggs in more baskets, you, you increase the adaptive potential of those populations, obviously, to, to adapt to some of those future climate changes and uh, changes in their population. And uh, hopefully you get a, a stronger, more viable population in the future. Yes, that's exactly right. Yep, you said it. All right. No worries, Jeff. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. We do have to wrap it up, but this has been uh, fascinating stuff. Uh, cheers very much, and, uh, yeah, hopefully we can talk again soon. Okay, thanks very much for your interest. That was great. All right, that wraps up our plant case studies and our case study series for the Book of Hope. You can check out the book now at CSIRO Publishing and other outlets. Just Google Recovering Australian Threatened Species, A Book of Hope. Thanks for joining us, everyone. Don't forget to like and follow us at Wildlife Cake and Cocktails on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and so on. More Wildlife Cake and Cocktails on the way soon, folks. Cheers. Cheers.